The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. I'm going to do the math for you, although it's not math. Well, I guess calendars have numbers, so it's math. It's the Saturday show is what I'm saying is all. Earlier in this week, oh, and let me explain the format if you haven't been here on a Saturday before. I play one segment from the previous week and one segment from the vaults. So the previous week, I did a spiel on unintended consequence as they've shown up during the abortion debate or the abortion reality or lack of abortion reality for too many women. My point was the unintended consequence, the one that we weren't told to anticipate. Some There were some intimation that this could go on, but there have been so many stories about women who have had to deal with horrors because they weren't close enough to death to get an abortion. And I talk about that in our segment from this week. Now, on the theme of unintended consequence, I was thinking of an interview I did with Kurt Anderson on the occasion of the publication of his book, Fantasyland. And the thesis of Fantasyland, whose subtitle is how America went haywire, is that America has always been a place that was extremely tolerant, in fact, embracing of people with really wackadoo ideas. That was the original title of this episode, Kurt Anderson's History of American Wackadoodles. And I guess, I don't know what the intended consequence is. Maybe we'd get into some new religions. Maybe we'd believe some things that couldn't be proven by science. But I think the unintended consequence Kurt drew the line to, at least, is what we're seeing with the Trump phenomenon and people just denying reality. And this interview occurred in 2019, and therefore the book was written before the claims of a stolen election and the January 6th insurrection. So it might not be a pleasant revisitation with Kurt, but I think it's still a timely one. Kurt Anderson following this spiel about unintended consequence. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. 
Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Conservatives are always talking about the law of unintended consequences. Really far-right guys like Congressman Chip Roy here on the OAN network talking about COVID restrictions in 2021. To look at all of the unintended or frankly maybe for some intended consequences. And more moderate conservatives talk about it as well. Thoughtful conservatives like Matthew Continetti here being interviewed by Jonah Goldberg again citing this law. There's this deep insight into the unintended consequences of social action. Is it a law? It's not describing something that's inevitable, like the law of gravity. It's not a law with inputs and variables where you could predict outcomes like Ricardo's law of wages. By the way, the iron law of wages is what they call that. Or even the law of diminishing returns. It seems like the kind of law that sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't, like, I don't know, the law in Haiti or something. And also the idea that consequences will always be negative. They'll always be downside consequences. Why is that? If the consequences are unintended, wouldn't they be randomly distributed? Some could positively surprise us, but ones that don't occur with abortion. There are laws of unintended consequences happening right now with the enactment of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. Women, we were told, will be forced to give birth. Women, we were told, will have the health consequences that come with back alley abortions performed with wire hangers. Indeed, the hanger was the symbol of protesters, even outside the justice's house to this day. But the real consequences seldom, though not never foretold, are all these horror stories happening now about pregnant women in states with bans essentially not being in bad enough shape to get medical interventions, almost dying, but not quite dying enough. Oh, well, life of the mother. That seems like a tidy phrase when you say it or put it in a bill, but it's a really subjective thing. And when it was the doctor who was overseeing the subjectivity therein, that's one thing. But hospital administrators overseen by review boards, overseen by legislatures with the force of law behind them, that's another thing. So many stories. Here's one in the Baton Rouge Advocate. A mother carrying a non-viable 16-week-old fetus had her water break. The fetus will not survive. The doctor wanted to perform a DNA which is very common abortion procedure to take out the not viable fetus. But the doctor consulted an attorney. The attorney advised against it. The woman was forced to go through a painful hours-long labor to deliver a non-viable fetus despite her best wishes and medical advice. According to one doctor's complaint, she talked about her patient. She was screaming, not from pain, but from the emotional trauma she was experiencing. The woman then hemorrhaged nearly a liter of blood, 
quote from the affidavit this doctor put forward. There is no medical basis for my patient or any other patient in this state to experience anything like this. This was the first time in my 15-year career that I could not give a patient the care they needed. This is a travesty. The travesties continue. Today in the New York Times, a story about a young woman whose fetus had not formed a skull. Even with surgery, doctors said there'd be nothing to protect the brain. The fetus wouldn't be able to survive for hours, maybe not even minutes. But they wouldn't give the woman an abortion procedure because of the legal definition of non-viable. The most affecting story I heard on this was reported by Carrie Feibel on NPR, concerned a Texas woman named Elizabeth Weller who had her water break at 18 weeks, meaning she was six weeks from viability, but without amniotic fluids, the fetus couldn't develop. One medical expert said it was virtually assured that Weller would miscarry, and she had significant health risks. It was a clear example of the necessity of protecting the life of the woman via an abortion procedure. But Texas did not budge. Think about this. Think of the mother, think of the fetus. Probably we can say, in all safety, there was zero chance that in a few weeks there would be two living beings between the mother and fetus. But there was a significant chance that there'd be zero living human beings. Still, Texas would not allow the procedure. Weller was told her life was not in danger enough. Go home, wait to miscarry, or wait to get a little closer to death. But, you know, let's hope not all the way there. And then, on her way out of the hospital... This happened. But as I'm leaving Methodist, I get a call from Methodist. And it's this woman who is saying, hi, Miss Weller, um, you're at the 19 week mark. So I'm here to call you to register for your delivery on October 5th so I can collect all your insurance information. How are you doing? And are you excited for the delivery? And I just cried and screamed in the parking lot. This poor woman had no idea what she was telling me. And I told her, no, ma'am. I'm actually headed home right now because I have to await my dead baby's delivery. And she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't know. This is an unintended consequence. Not that OBGYNs or doctors were concerned or didn't know about this, but this cascade of story after story blow right through that tidy phrase, the life of the mother. There are so many stories like this. If you're paying attention, you're appalled. Many of the women profiled in these stories, by the way, are themselves against abortion. But no lives are being saved with any, and there are so many more stories like this that I could tell. Many lives, always women's lives, are being risked. We were told that women would die seeking legal abortions. I guess that was the unintended consequence we could imagine. But the truth is women have been suffering and may yet die, not from doing something illegal, but because states and hospitals refuse to give them procedures, which on the books they say are legal. When the life of the mother provision is enforced by a lawmaker or an administrator, suffering abounds. So let's go back to conservatives. Were they right to have the orientation that is suspicious of unintended consequences? I think this actually confirms the healthy suspicion of unintended consequences. But what else is going on with the Dobbs ruling, and this all tells us something about the Dobbs ruling, is that it was quite radical. It drastically upended the social order. 
It created risk. It was, in a sentence, not a conservative decision, even if political conservatives wanted abortion bans. Because now they got them. And these bans have proved far more chaotic and harmful than what was predicted. If more of these stories are heard, even by voters predisposed to vote Republican, I think it could change minds, and that would be one consequence the conservatives never intended. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. America, what a country, to quote Yakov Shmirnov. All right, he was a new immigrant. He had the zeal of the converted. Here's the real deal with America. America went haywire. That's the subtitle of Fantasyland, a 500-year history of America by Kurt Anderson. Two things to note about the phrase went haywire. On the book, the word haywire is in a weird, crazy font, just to get you in the mind of what Kurt is talking about. But also, the went, the went... I think we started off and have always been haywire. Isn't that correct, Kurt? Well, we certainly had the seeds of haywire-ness from the very, very get-go, which is why it's a 500-year history. How we started was because someone in England was haywire. Well, someone in England were both haywire and saw an opportunity to make some money by starting some colonies. So the Puritans were, just the word would uh, connote Puritan, but also they radically broke from society. They were outcasts. They came here. We're, we're started by not Jamestown, but the England, the uh, New Boston England colonies. Folks, yeah. yeah well, 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 the Puritans were the most zealous Protestants in England. Then the, the separating Puritans, freakier still, more zealous still. And then the, the separating Puritans who had to get out of England were our people. Uh, so was it just a cycle that you had to one-up the guys who came before you? Why does this happen? Well, that's a, that's a very good question because, yes, maybe in all religion, but certainly in the religion I now have spent a lot of time looking at, which is American Protestantism, yes. Is it a certain sect or brand or strain of Christianity that is most of the haywireness that you document? I would say it's several. And that's and, and, and churches in the last 50 years, since my big bang of haywireness uh, started in the 60s, call themselves non-denominational churches. So it's very hard to say it's this. But let's look at a few practices. Let's look at, say, speaking in tongues, which when I was a little boy was a thing really the freaks did. And I, and I was born in Nebraska. I grew up in Nebraska. So 
you know, you had to be pretty freaky to be considered freakish uh, in a religious sense. So speaking in tongues, Jesus is really any second going to come back and there's going to be the final Armageddon and war between Satan and Jesus. Not only are you speaking to God, but he's speaking back to you. These kinds of beliefs and practices, faith healing, are what I am regarding as sort of beyond the pale of extreme and aren't part of practice and belief in the rest of Christendom in the civilized world. And so when we talk about speaking tongues, there are the people who do it and endorse it. But also you talk about how even our top religious figures, our Billy Grahams, will not say that there's anything wrong about it. Well, they they used to never mention it. That was a schism between most Protestants and Pentecostals for, for years and years. And then in the uh, as we all entered crazy town, Billy Graham stopped criticizing it and began saying, no, this is fine. The Bap- the Southern Baptists, who are still kind of holdouts and old school, like we don't really we really don't believe in speaking in tongues. But they decided if you're going to a foreign country as a missionary, go ahead, speak in tongues. It right. doesn't matter when you're there. Whenever I hear a person who doesn't particularly believe in a religion or doesn't subscribe to the tenets of a religion describing that religion, you can always make even mainstream Protestantism seem wackadoo. You can make, Mm. well, I was raised Roman Catholic, and if you told me, Hmm. you know, they believe that a little bit of cannibalism takes place during the transubstantiation of the Eucharist, I would say that's a little crazy. But in terms of the- But that's what you guys believe. (laughs) Right, that's true, but it's not what you're talking about in American haywire. No. So the point isn't that you're pointing to one or two beliefs that technically, yeah, these people would say doctrine uh, the, compels me. But these are the way people live by either speaking in tongues or fighting the search, forces search, of demonic possession correct, all the time. Correct. I, I don't bring up the idea or debate the idea of whether Jesus was the son of God and was resurrected 2,000 years ago. Maybe so. I don't know. I got no way of saying. But yes, it's exactly as you say. It's it's how you live now and how you think the world works now and going into restaurants and sniffing around for demons or shaking your friends so that and speaking to them so that the demons leave them or faith healing or all those things. Yeah, these aren't debatable ideas about what happened in the past or even how humans and the earth were created. This this is belief and practice here today and the world is about to end. The question is just Is it 2050? Is it 2040? Is it 2030? Right. And the mainline denominations, as you document, have shifted from defining themselves in opposition to these crazy beliefs to countenancing them because I think to a large degree, they're businesses and they see that a lot of customers are drawn to that. Why uh, piss off the customer base? Well, but but I I find the mainline uh, denominations, which, by the way, weren't called mainline until the 60s when right. the the other ones began well, arising. Well, it's just why you don't have to name the thing an acoustic guitar before <laughs> there's an electric guitar. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there yes, there are charismatic believing Methodists who believe in faith healing. But the United Methodist Church, Episcopal Church, the, the mainline denominations, as they lose parishioners day after day and year after year, are pretty much holding to their reasonable, mm-hmm. the way Protestantism was when I was a kid uh, line. Uh, so they, they, unlike a lot of establishment characters and institutions, didn't really give it up. It was taken from them. 
Whereas I argue, for instance, that a lot of the academy, they gave it up. They, they stopped saying, oh, no, that's BS. Yeah. We're not going to count it. There's that. such a thing as truth. That's not a very popular opinion in the academy. No. And, and of course, uh, and, and there shouldn't be because, of course, all science, hard science even, is provisional truth. And, and we'll allow new facts to make us revise our version of reality. But this idea that magic is just as good as the scientific method, that was a new thing. Right. Okay. So I want to talk about that because the excessively religious Christians come in for it, as do the people who believe in uh, past lives and chakras and also the academy. The, the people that you write about who are affiliated with, say, the University of Arizona, who, what's his name? Gary Schwartz. Gary Schwartz. Tell me a little bit about him and then I have a follow-up. <clears throat> well, he is a guy who, and I focused on him because he has this, these credentials, a great CV, Yale, Harvard, the whole business who at a certain point in midlife decided uh, he believed in communication with the dead and all kinds of empirically <laughs> unprovable things that are exciting and magical and supernatural. And, and coincidences mean something. And coincidences mean something. He's published papers in this new official American Psychology Association journal about this kind of stuff that, oh, I, I saw giraffe and Paris 12 times in the last three weeks. God is talking to me. That literally is one of his papers published in a peer-reviewed How could it be peer-reviewed? Do I not understand peer-review? Uh, you, you Are his peers you, you find the right giraffes? You gotta find the right peers. <laughs> oh my God. So my question though is, did the University of Arizona, which is a legit school, it is. It's the not, main campus. It's not Phoenix yeah, University. Yeah. No. Well, they wanted him they to did. perpetuate these ideas right. under their auspices. He left Yale and moved to University of Arizona and got tenure there once it was clear his paradigm, this non-materialist, meaning essentially unscientific paradigm. And of course, he's a professor, among other things, of surgery there. This is a guy who doesn't have a medical degree or any hard science degree. It's interesting. My my British publisher, was the lawyer there, was just calling me or writing me and saying, we should perhaps make clear that Professor Schwartz, Schwartz does not practice surgery. And I said, okay, I, I don't know that he doesn't, but I assume you're right. And we, we'll make clear of that because, of course, in England, they have... Uh, yeah, if you get it wrong, it's on riskier liable. Yes, it, Professor yeah. Schwartz might go venue shopping in England. If the, giraffe, if the Parisian giraffe <laughs> tell him to. Um, I have long thought that the kind of Christian and right-wing wackadoodles have an impact on my life in terms of national politics. But the left-wing wackadoodles in the day-to-day, they're the anti-vaxxers who live in my Brooklyn neighborhood. They're the alternative therapy people. And yet I somehow tend to discount them. I don't know if it's because they're left-wing and they don't want to take away abortion rights. But which do you think is the more pernicious influence? Well, the right, the people on the right who, who are bringing their embrace of the untrue into the public policy realm are, are more pernicious because more of them believe untrue things and they have more power and those untrue beliefs have more power, like in denying climate science. But I know what you mean as a fellow Brooklynite, who, some of whose lefty friends believe in like not vaccinating their children, but it's pernicious in a different way because we're on the same side in some sense and you really can't be selectively uh, science denying in that way. You can't say, oh, but 88% of scientists agree that the climate change, and, but, and then suddenly say, but I'm not going to vaccinate my children or GMOs are going to kill you. You can't have it both ways. And because I feel more 
like those people, it sometimes angers me more, especially in the case of anti-vax, where that does affect other people and makes other people sick, has killed other people. And there's a lower threshold for them hurting the society because of how herd immunity works. If 12% of the people want to take away your your right to an abortion, it doesn't it won't get effectuated. If 5% of a herd doesn't vaccinate, the whole herd is now yeah. uh, susceptible to the disease. Yes. Even though it kind of freaks me out to think of human beings as herd herds, but yes, <laughs> exactly right. And I tried to avoid the both sides do it yeah. problem. Both sides do do it, all of this stuff, but it is larger on the right for a whole set of uh, historical and maybe psychological reasons. Well, one of the reasons, as you point out, is that on the right, it's largely influenced by Christianity. Christianity has such a strong tradition in this country and it's uh, metastasized itself in different ways that it has elsewhere. And once you believe in one of these or maybe two of these untruthful ways of seeing the world, then you're opening the door to a whole bunch of other untruthful things. Hello, Donald Trump. No, it is, is, I mean, extreme Christianity. And again, I want to make clear, I mean, I love... The, your your former church, or perhaps your current church, the Roman Catholic Church, because of its its top down, mainline keeping the hierarchy in place, keeping the crazy tendrils from growing out of yeah, control. It's conservative in the true sense. It, it, yeah. Exactly. I'm not anti Christian. I find, to use your phrase, the wackadoo Christians who are have found their place in the modern Republican Party problematic because, as you say, that is a gateway set of beliefs to. Deciding you can believe whatever you want about anything, about Israel, about climate change, about whatever. And that's problematic because in this country, when you say, oh, that's a matter of deep personal faith, you're not supposed to talk about it any further. It's Mm -hmm. off the table. So here I was in the last election, and it does not surprise me that a large percentage of people have ideas that are far different from mine, ideas that I would just say are based on untruths. And that number, there's a baseline number that's probably in the 30s. And then you layer on to it. I know some people will always vote Republican. There are some people who rationally voted Republicans, like if they're millionaires or something. And there are people who hate Hillary Clinton. And my analysis was you add it all up, it's still, I don't know, 5% fewer than what Hillary Clinton's going to get in terms of the vote. And therefore, we're fine. Hey, I live in a rich tapestry of a nation, but we're fine. But when that tissue-thin difference between the sane and the insane, you're, you're a little wrong about, or it's uh, the difference is uh, miscalculated uh, from one side to the other, the entire world changes. And I wonder, I mean, you write about this in terms of the Thomas Jefferson quote, which is, if it doesn't break my leg or pick my pocket, I could live with it. But have we been right all along to say that, hey, it's fine if, you know, some large percentage of Americans believe untruthful things as long as it doesn't show up in, say, a national election? I would have said definitely, unreservedly, yes, even 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 Uh, years ago. I'm not sure now, partly because we live in the digital age where the untrue has such astoundingly real-looking, legit-looking websites and and existence digitally, virtually. So uh, what are you going to do? You can't make believing preposterous things illegal. You can't – I mean, free speech is not only (laughs) in the Constitution and part of the American way, but practically how could you do it? So what what are you going to do? But I think we are now reckoning with the excesses of democracy and liberty. Yeah. Do you think it's all reached a crescendo? 
I mean, the title of the book, as I said in the intro, is How It Went Haywire. Yeah. Of course, it's always been haywire. During our greatest moments, the haywire aspects were there. It's not as if we won World War II at a time when insanity disappeared. It was still there. Everything that America achieved, and its achievements are notable and many, is during set against the backdrop of craziness. So this is kind of the where do we go from here? Well, or has I, it reached some sort of crescendo I, from which the center will not hold? That that's that's my worry. I mean, yes, we've always had all of the forms of craziness than we have now. I don't know about always, but for a long time in various ways, even for, or versions of them. Yeah, yeah, even like oh, we think the televangelist—that's a modern thing that yeah. just happened in the '60s and '80s. No, guys in the 1700s were like discovered show business as they were preaching around the country. Right. Or if you look at uh, what Breitbart is selling now, uh, reading—I mean, I barely remembered the book, but when you wrote the uh, wrote about the book, none dare call it treason—a very nationalistic, conspiratorial Breitbart view of the world, which sold a million copies, yes. and everyone believed that the state, not everyone, but millions of people believe the State Department was stocked with traitors. Right. (laughs) Yet, the Republican Party, for instance, kept all of that, that fringe conspiracist delusion out of platforms, out of the mainstream. It was the elites were in control. So, yeah, it's always been there. I worry that for a variety of reasons, we may not be able to roll it back. Chief among them, I guess, is the digital age, where the alternate realities that people can create for themselves or or have created for them are all-encompassing 24-7, and so uh, you never get out of it. I mean, uh, my dad, who was not a nut in any way, still was a Goldwater conservative. He watched the NBC Nightly News and read Time Magazine and got his copy of the National Review every two weeks. Not for five hours a day or 16 hours a day that you get when you're watching Fox News or listening to... By the way, the National Review, which (laughs) sidelined sidelined the Birch Society. Exactly. That's the way conservative... Should be. Conservatism should be. To, to sideline the the nuts and yeah. the wing nuts and the radicals in that case. And, and that's that's my problem with I, – I won't call the, the people who are called conservatives today conservative. Some, some of them are. Some I mean, are. real true conservatives. But what's called, oh, the, 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 the very conservative part of the House. No, 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 no. They're not conservative. They are not conservative. They are the opposite of a conservative. Yeah, the Freedom Caucus are radicals. Yes. And the alt-right is not right and definitely <laughs> alt. Yeah. Yeah. Kurt Anderson is the author of Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history, and about a 500-page book. So it's about a one-to-one correlation. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. Our show is produced by Corey Wara with senior producer Joel Patterson, and we will talk to you on Monday.